Yeah, I'm going to, so I'm going to talk about um, <coughs> introducing the Oxford School of Industrial Relations and the Donovan, Donovan Public Policy Debate. I realise people here from all sorts of backgrounds, so in a sense, what I'm, all I'm going to try and do really is to frame the why are we here and why is it an interesting subject, if you like. Um, so I think was the first thing to say is, well, how did it all begin? Where do we start? Um, and, and the obvious starting point for anyone who's done sort of, you know, the history of socialist thought in Britain, the history of uh, industrial relations in Britain, is probably GDH Cole. Uh, and GDH Cole is indeed a, a key Oxford link to the emerging uh, post World War II labour movement. Obviously a very, very important person during the 1930s, probably the most important socialist intellectual in Britain, I guess. Uh, the coal group at Oxford, a lot of people belonged to the coal group or went along to the coal group, in, including people like Hugh Clegg, uh, I'm going to talk about in a minute. So, and also very influential in the early days of, of Nuffield College. The only question about the, and in a sense I'm raising questions rather than giving answers at the moment, the only question about GDH Cole is that neither, neither Hugh Clegg nor Alan, Fox, Alan Flanders got on terribly well with GDH Cole. So there's a sort of, there is a link to GDH Cole, but it's a sort of imperfect sort of link. Uh, in a way, uh, if we go back to where did it all begin, uh, 1947, Hugh Clegg become no he finished his PPE degree. He becomes Norman Chester's research student at Nuffield College. I think that's a very important sort of turning point. Uh, at that stage, obviously, Hugh Clegg has never heard of industrial relations. He's, he's a politics, he's a politics tutor at, um, at uh, Magdalen at the time, so he's never actually heard of industrial relations at that point. Um, but I think that's a very, very important relationship that develops. And um, the relationship between Norman Chester and Hugh Clegg, I think, is absolutely central to this story of these developments at Nuffield. As I understand it, Hugh Clegg was Norman Chester's sort of lieutenant in his campaign to become the warden uh, of Nuffield College. Um, <laughs> When, when GDH Cole said that uh, Hugh Clegg's research wasn't enough for a, a, a defil, uh, it was, it was uh, uh, Norman Chester who took him down to Blackwells and got him a book contract for his first book. You know, so a very, very significant, influential figure at the start of it. I think the next, the next crucial point, obviously, is the summer of 1949. And it's rather intriguing that Alan Flanders and Hugh Clegg both arrive at Oxford at the same time. Uh, I think, again, Cole's there in the background. I think Cole's there in the background, and I, I've not actually researched this in detail, but Cole's there's in the background of uh, setting up the lecturer in industrial relations, which Alan Flanders takes. He's influential also in the, uh, the fellow in industrial relations at Nuffield that Hugh Clegg takes. But at the same time, they're, they're appointed Nuffield Fellow in Industrial Relations and University <coughs> Senior Lecturer in Industrial Relations. So in a sense, I think that probably is the starting point at Oxford, 19, that, that summer of 1949. And then the next phase in the process um, is, is the formation of a weekly industrial relations seminar, which, uh, listening to Brian Harrison's interview with Hugh Clegg, uh, I always thought it was, at, it was actually at Nuffield, but obviously Nuffield didn't exist as a physical place at the time. Uh, and so the early seminars, I understand, were actually at uh, either Magdalen or at the university schools. So, so and this is a this is an important uh, early early phase in the seminar in 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 the group. So I think that's where we sort of start from. 
why does it matter? Um, I think, and why do people like me get into sort of doing research on this? I think probably two, two reasons. Uh, one is in the sense that we're, we're witnessing the sort of birth of a new academic social science field, at least in British terms. I know someone like Bruce Kaufman would say, oh, we've been doing that for a long time in America, sort of thing. But it, in British terms, following the US model, and, and you know, that what, what's created at Nuffield leads on to developments, uh, or is linked to developments at Warwick and the LSE in the 1970s under Clegg and Ben Roberts. And, you know, I think those of us that work in human resource management departments, probably still uncomfortable with that strange name, uh, realise that there's a, con a continuity with those origins. We're still doing things <coughs> that were started off in that period. Um, and the British University's Industrial Relations Association still meets, uh, and that tradition carries on today. So that's one reason. It's the development of a, a new academic social science field at a time when a lot of social science field, fields were forming in the UK. You know, so sociology is shaping itself in the UK at the same time in, in this period, and also at Nuffield. Um, I th what interested me for another reason, though, I think, is it you know, addressed a crucial public policy moment in the development of what I, what I would call social democratic corporatism in the UK. So you come out of the, you come out of the, the Second World War, there's an enormous amount of hubris about the brilliant British system, how good we are at the art of compromise, how we don't need formal institutions, etc., etc. By the time you get to the 1960s, there's a, there's a, there's a sudden re realisation that we're falling behind other economies, that we do have quite big problems. Um, and this is, this is this crucial moment, to, uh, which seems to me, uh, and central to this is the role of trade unions, which, after all, most of the British academics don't know much about. And one of the crucial features about the Oxford School is they know a lot about trade unions and they make it their business to know about trade unions when other people don't know much about them. So the big political opportunities, obviously, in 1964-70 Labour governments, uh, a new awareness of the weakness of the British economy, or Harold Wilson's rhetoric, the, the white heat of technology, getting rid of restrictive practices. So it's, it's a new sort of policy opportunity. And I think that people that say, you know, that Britain was always on a neoliberal type trajectory need to be aware that at this time there was a lot of corporatist stuff going on in Britain. Uh, there were neo-corporatist tripart institutions that, you know, this period, you know, the TUC had been around a long time, the National Economic Development Council had been developed in 1963. Uh, from 64, you've got the DEA, you've got the National Board of Prices and Incomes, the TUC's got an Incomes Policy Committee. Uh, the TUC, the CBI unifies. So you've got like a, a corporatist moment, if you like, uh, here. And I think there's a sense with Donovan that, in a sense, that the, that the superstructure there, but the problem is in the workplace. What can we do about workplace industrial relations? And how, how can we fit the sort of, terrible for me to use in these Marxist metaphors, but how do we fit the base and superstructure together, if you like? Um, And you know the Donovan report is, an, is is the big attempt to do this, and this is a you know becomes it's not obviously it is at the start, but it becomes very much an Oxford School project to reform voluntary collective bargaining and avoid crude forms of legal enactment, crude legal solutions to the problems at the time. And we can talk about that more in detail. 
But I think it also makes sense not to see the Donovan report as just a separate thing, but to see it as part of a process which, roll, <coughs> which rolls into a whole series of efforts. So 1969 in place of strife, which I understand Bill McCarthy actually uh, drafted. Um, although it break, there's more legal regulation in there, it's still carrying on a lot of the Donovan ideas. Even the 1971 Industrial Relations Act, there's quite a lot of the Donovan ideas there. And then, of course, the 1974 social contract is an attempt to strike a sort of corporatist-type solution. Uh, and to use, you know, I think there's a sense in this period when our people were important, uh, to use Brian Harrison's term, that corporatism was sort of tested to destruction. That, you know, Britain was trying to do the same things that Sweden was doing, that the West Germany was doing, but it wasn't working in Britain. I think what the interesting debate to me is why it didn't work in Britain. Um, so that brings us on to who, who were the key figures? Who are these people? And here I've... Uh, Slightly scared of who I might offend or something. I, 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 <laughs> I, I've stuck to uh, Jeremy uh, Bugler's um, group, the New Oxford group. And, and if you've read George, George Bain and Willie Brown's uh, pieces they've circulated, I'm going to cover civil, similar ground to them. But here's a quote from Bugler. He says, Dialing 0092, the Oxford prefix is a performance you can predict of an editor who wants an article on the role of shop steward of an employer, employer's association which needs specialist advice of a trade union seeking guidance. It is too a necessary ritual for a government de department in need of an academic for a committee of inquiry into a strike. So this very sense of this group of people that, have, that sort of have a monopoly of the know-how, if you like, about trade unions, this, this major new institution that in the post-war period everyone, everyone really realises is, is central. Um, and Berger has five, five men and I'm going, to t I'm, going to follow, I'm going to follow his order, basically. And I think it's worth just observing. I'm not going to say anything about it at the moment. It's a very, very male industrial relations world. You know, you cannot find a single woman of any significance in, in this Oxford school. And that may be something we, we want to talk about a bit, little bit during the day. And the first person, the one I've been devoting most of my attention to, is, is Hugh Clegg. Um, you could, there's rather a nice picture of Euclid uh, available. Um, then 47 years old, Methodist minister's son, uh, former communist, quite, uh, I think I've tried to show in my work, quite a committed communist for quite a long period of time, so it's quite a significant uh, part of his background in my view. Uh, I think what uh, Clegg's contribution is, is, to uh, is to build a powerful research base uh, through, through a big Leverhulme, 1956 Leverhulme-funded program, which seems to give him a... You don't get grants like that nowadays. He like, seems to get a huge amount of money to do almost what he wants with, as far as I can make out. You know, <laughs> trade union history, studies of almost anything to do with trade unions. Um, uh, and also the powerful links to trade unions at Nuffield. I think this is where Nuffield is absolutely crucial to this, that Nuffield develops this sort of relationship with the trade union movement, where trade unions come down for weekends and stuff like this. And Norman Chester and Hugh Clegg are absolutely central to that, that part of the story. And as I've argued, you know, that, uh, as other people have argued as well, that he's a key figure on the Donovan Report because he writes his own draft, which turns the, 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 the whole Donovan inquiry in a different direction to what it was travelling. <coughs> For the other people, I've had to go back to the original articles. So the photographs are not very good. Alan Flanders, um, old, older person, you know, 57 years old, uh, from a, a, a working-class trade union background. 
um, for, for, worked for the TUC. Um, also a really quite significant uh, ethical socialist, and John Kelly's book has, has shown this really well. It's almost two halves to, to Alan Flanders that most people are not aware how they fit together until John's book. You know, one half is the sort of socialist intellectual, which most of the politics people know about. The other half is the industrial relations academic, which the, which the IR people know about. You put them together, you get a very interesting figure. A key figure in the influential socialist union, uh, socialist commentary group, regarded as a, as a sort of theoretician uh, among the uh, Oxford School, among a, a group of people who was, at least in their rhetoric, are militant empiricists, you know, that it's all about empiricism. And obviously provides the, one of the key, probably the key submissions to the Donovan Commission, which frames the direction that that commission goes. Alan Fox, and from another, another, another from a sort of more working class background, but from a very, a very non-labour movement working class background, if you read his memoirs, comes to Ruskin, again uh, does PPE, um, trade union historian to start with, um, and working on Clegg's big trade union history with Pat Thompson. Very different to the others, a, a lone scholar, uh, not a public policy person <coughs> at all, um, an entirely different type of intellectual figure, but also very influential in his own way, and I think probably had a, has had a long-term long influence in terms of his link to the growth of sociology uh, and to 1970s radical industrial relations ideas, the work you know, of people like uh, Richard Hyman, uh, Paul Edwards, and so forth. So a, a long-term influence there from Alan Fox. An interesting thing to talk about during the day may be the link to sociology, because. Uh, both Clegg and Flanders are very suspicious of sociology, whereas Fox opens up to sociology. <laughs> uh, Bill McCarthy, um, again, working class roots, Ruskin and PPE, does a PhD with Clegg and Flanders on the closed shop becomes the Donovan Research Director. And, and again, the characteristics that shared with someone like Clegg have been an arbitrator and a mediator. Uh, again, deep, deeply involved with trade unions, not just in terms of research, but in terms of public policy uh, issues and stuff like that. And probably distinctive in terms of being the, the most political, in t with a big P member of the group, becomes a politician, um, becomes Labour's employment spokesman in the House of Lords from 1980 to 1997. Very difficult times to have that sort of role. Probably the least mem known member of the group, probably Arthur Marsh. Um, comes through another part, another important part of the ingredients of this school, which is often neglected perhaps, is the adult education type wing, uh, and comes through the delegacy of extramural studies, uh, becomes a senior research fellow at St Edmunds Hall, and along with McCarthy is the man who brings the close contact with Oxford Engineering, and Oxford Engineering shop stewards and shop stewards training courses, and again, all that sort of detailed know-how. And then the sort of wider circles, there's interesting, intriguing questions. You know, like for instance, Ben Roberts is quite a near miss in terms of Oxford. Ben Roberts, <laughs> I, I didn't mean that in a facetious way, but ben, ben Roberts was actually at Oxford until 1949, and then he goes to the LSE for his first lecturing post, you know. And he's also, he, Ben Roberts is also in Alan Flanders' Socialist Union Group. 
So some very intriguing links there. Yeah. And, and then also, you know, the, the missing economists, you know, it's the, the bit that's the darkest for me in terms of knowing about is, is, the, is the economists, you know, people like Kenneth Knowles, who forms that initial seminar with Flanders and Clegg, uh, John Carina, Derek Robinson, that, you know, also an important part of the scene. Um, one of the things that when Brian Harrison's earlier work pointed out was that the sense of Oxford has been an outsider group at this time, the Oxford School, within Oxford, within a, within a very humanities-dominated type university, uh, linked to outsider institutions. You know, so Ruskin College, where John Hughes is, for instance, Barnett House, the start of sociology and social administration, the delegate, the delegacy. There's a sort of bit of a, there's a sort of interesting sort of social geography of the Oxford School, which is around Wellington Square, where people met up and talked to each other and things like that. Then you've got people, you know, on the periphery in a sense. Otto Kahn Freud, who's also very, very important on the Donovan Inquiry, but arrives in Oxford the year before. Pat Thompson, who, who's a historian and, and um, college friend of, of Hugh Clegg, who, who contributes to the history. And then we've got the next generation, and I'm, I'm sure I've missed some people off there, but you know, many of whom are here today, George Bain, Willie Brown, Richard Hyman, Rod Martin, Roger Under, et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting trying to map the wider sort of circles of the Oxford School. Why did they have impact? Um, this is just my input, my view. Uh, I think, you know, pl a pluralist theory at the right time, at the period of development of social democratic corporatism, they had a sort of theory which fitted neatly into that sort of society. Um, and they had practical applied public policy solutions. So quite remarkable the extent to which there was a joined up policy thinking, to use current jargon, taking place with Alan Flanders and Clegg during the Donovan period. Um, but also um, very good links to the main actors, both employers, but particularly trade unions, very close links, particularly Clegg, very close, and McCarthy, very close links to trade unions. But I think also it's worth observing that very substantial, influential research, a lot of research going on from the 1950s onwards. Uh, Clegg's, Clegg's Leverhulme project, most famously Flanders' Fawley Productivity Agreements, Bill McCarthy's work in the local Oxford engineering industry and so forth. So there's a real big body of knowledge which gives them a very powerful position in the policy debates. I think, you know, I think this is my final slide, isn't it? Yeah. And I think to sort of sum up for what I was going to say just now, really, is to say that they're, in a sense, representative figures of the, the post-war reconstruction generation. And that they should be seen in that wider context. They represent a particular strand within that wider context. And Noel Allen talks about our age, the generation that made post-war Britain. Hugh Clegg's got a, a sort of small walk on park in Noel Allen's book, for instance. I can't remember how many of the others have. Um, and Halsey's um, preface to uh, Alan Fox's autobiographies is interesting. He, he describes the, the prejudice, prejudices, predilections and politics of a generation which grew up in the slump years of the 1930s was catapulted somewhat mindlessly into her heroic war against fascism in the 1940s, fumbled towards an anti-Marxist social dem democracy in the 1950s, sought a post-imperial persona in the 1960s and struggled to find a new dynamic of post-industrialism in the 1970s. 
societies. You know, so that is the part of a particular generation. Obviously, there's interesting debates about which elements from that generation we can carry forward. And I think I'll stop there.